Nancy, thank you so much. And thank you to the Aspen Institute and the Aspen Ideas Festival. We're so pleased to be here. In case you're wondering, this is the social and emotional well-being of college students panel. So if you're in the wrong place, this would be the time to go. Any college students in the room? Show of hands. OK, we've got one. My son is supposed to be here, too. Don't worry. Um, but clearly, he has not arrived yet. Um, so anyway, welcome. We're so glad that you could be here. I'd like to introduce our wonderful panelists. I'm going to start in the middle with Erica Christakis. And Erica is a lecturer at the Yale Child Study Center, where she teaches undergraduate courses in child development, as well as education policy. And for decades, she has had experience as a teacher, program director, school consultant, and a college administrator. Erica, welcome. Lori Gottlieb is a psychotherapist and New York Times best-selling author. I happen to do a little promotion here. here best-selling author of Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Good Enough. Lori is a con <laughs> We can talk about that. That could be a whole different panel. Um, Lori is a contributing editor for The Atlantic, as well as she writes for The New York Times Magazine about the intersection of psychology and culture. And Lori, welcome to you. And last but certainly not least, new book. Um, Rachel Greenwald is the New York Times best-selling author of Find a Husband After 35, Using What I Learned at Harvard Business School. <laughs> and in case you want to know how popular that was, it has been translated into 20 languages. <laughs> It has also been optioned for a movie, correct? Yes. Um, Rachel is a professional matchmaker and a dating coach, and she is responsible for more than 800 marriages. And as my girlfriend Minnie knows, I do that as an amateur. I've got three marriages to, to my name. So anyway, so welcome, everybody. Erica, I want to begin with you. You work with college students, both in a therapeutic setting as well as in an academic setting. When we're talking about the social and emotional well-being of college students, set the scene for us, sure. if you can. Good afternoon. I think the way I'd like to set the scene first is just to ask how many parents of college students are in the room right now. OK, that's very helpful. Um, Grandparent. I'm a, excellent. I'm also a parent of two college students and a high schooler. So this topic has a lot of personal meaning to me. Before I came to Yale, I worked at Harvard as a college administrator, but that title doesn't really capture what I did, which was more like being kind of a house mother at Hogwarts. Um, together with my husband, Nicholas Christakis, we were co-masters of one of the residential houses at Harvard, where 400 undergraduates lived literally amongst with us. Um, for four years. So I got to see Harvard students up close outside of their academic experience on a daily basis for years. And that really informed a lot of what I want to talk to you about today. Now I'm teaching at Yale, so I get to see students in a different capacity um, in their academic lives as well. So when I set the stage, I think one thing that's kind of interesting to me is to think about developmentally where college students are. Um, you know, they're adults, of course, legally and in other ways. But if you think about it developmentally, and I'm, I'm an early childhood educator, so that's my lens. Um, if you think about it, college students actually developmentally have a lot in common with kindergartners. Um, and I don't mean that facetiously. I mean that quite literally in the sense that they are leaving home for the first time. They're crafting an identity for themselves. They're learning how to interact with other people. They're coming up against new ideas, new people. And I think this is a very stressful time in students' lives. What's different nowadays, I think, is that uh, the mental health 
challenges of students are growing. We know that students have uh, you know, very high rates of prescription and non-prescription drug use. Um, depression rates are very high. There's a tremendous amount of anxiety about um, employment opportunities after college. So a lot of these external pressures and cultural changes in the way children have been raised are making the transition to college, I think, a lot more challenging in some ways for students. So um, I think that's one thing that we should bear in mind. And I think having said that, I also want to emphasize that there's some really good news about young people today, too. And I don't want us to forget that in our conversation. Um, there are a lot of good things about, about how students are conducting their lives um, that we can talk about. But you know, one, one pressure on young people is, of course, the shift in personal relationships. And I think that's what we're all going to be talking about more. But the way that technology has really affected how people interact with one another and what that means for college life in terms of developing relationships, in terms of receptiveness to new ideas, um, and all kinds of other ways that uh, students are being challenged. And we will talk about that in, in greater depth. Lori, I'm curious. It's interesting. Here we have um, Erica, who works with college students. Lori actually starts to see them in their 20s after they come out of college. And then, of course, Rachel, you see them into their 30s and, and beyond. So there's an interesting progression here. And I'm curious, Lori, when you see these now no longer students in their 20s. Mm -hmm. What is your estimation? How are these students coming out? How, how do you find them in their 20s? Right, right. So a couple of years ago, I wrote this article called How to Land Your Kid in Therapy, Why Our Obsession with Our Kids' Happiness is Dooming Them to Unhappy Adulthoods. It's not as doom and gloom as it sounds. But um, I see these kids, and I wrote this article because I see these kids where they'll come in and they'll say, you know, my parents are my best friends in the whole world. I went to this great college. I've accomplished all of these things. And I'm just kind of feeling empty or lost or kind of not unhappy, but not happy enough. And they can't really pinpoint what's going on. And what I seem to notice in these kids is that they don't really have a sense of the kinds of things that make us full human beings. Um, earlier in life. So the first time that they're really failing at something or being challenged by something is at 22 instead of at 10. Um, you know, when they were growing up, their parents sort of solved their problems for them. If they didn't get into the school play, a phone call was made. If a teacher wasn't doing something that they wanted, a conference was set up. If they were having a less than um, you know, any sort of sign of displeasure, there was some way to sort of talk this through and get through it, as opposed to letting the child kind of sit with the sadness or the failure or the frustration. And so when you're experiencing all of this for the first time at a later age, and Erica talked a little bit about developmentally what's happening, um, you really don't know how to deal with it. And at the same time, why are the parents doing this? The parents sometimes are doing this because they've devoted a lot of their lives to the raising of their children at the expense of having their own lives. So when they get on college campuses, I've talked to a lot of deans at various colleges, um, and they've said that there are actually at some places, there's when freshmen are brought onto the campus, there are two processions. There's the procession that leads the kids off to their dorms, and then they have parent handlers who lead the parents off separately <laughs> because the parents are having so much trouble separating from the kids. And what happens is in college, they're texting their parents about assignments and this and that and the fight with the roommate. And the parents are sort of involved in solving everything through college. So they get out 
and now they're kind of maybe living on their own, but most of them are going back home, <laughs> and or they're doing some kind of you know thing for their resume because they don't know what they want to do, so they're going to some third world country, but they really don't know how to survive the real world. And I think what I'm seeing is this kind of sense of being lost. Why are we as parents having such a difficult time letting go then? I think part of it is that we are having less full lives ourselves. So we feel so much pressure to have our kids succeed in the world that we're devoting all of our time to that. So we don't do the things that parents may be, and I'm not painting some kind of idyllic picture of previous generations, but there were boundaries between sort of the parental unit and what was happening with the kids. Now we actually see a lot of divorced families, so there's a lot of wanting your kid to be your friend in a way that maybe parents didn't in the past. Um, there's also a lot of this peer pressure that you know other kids are taking this class or doing this extracurricular thing, so we've got to do that for our kids. So parents don't have their own social lives in the same way. Um, so they don't really know what to do when their kids leave the house either. Okay, Rachel, let me, let's move on for a moment because if success, if a really critical component of success mm -hmm. is being able to have happy relationships, how do you think college campuses are what kind of grade would you give college campuses in terms of the way they're preparing kids for having these kinds of meaningful relationships? I think I would give college campuses a D. A D? A not very good grade. Is that a grade it's, inflated D? No, it's a real D. It's a real D. It's not an F because I think there are a number of things happening on campuses that are really positive, um, especially in the residential advisor system and, and uh, you know, different mentoring programs that are set up. But there's so much more room for improvement. Um, there's a really interesting uh, Gallup-Purdue poll that came out recently. And they surveyed uh, 30,000 college graduates of all ages, all across the US, and from you know, elite private schools all the way to public schools and small schools you've never heard of. And out of 30,000 uh, graduates polled, only 3% said that college had prepared them for personal well-being. So it's not very good. low. Yeah. And I think you have to really kind of step back and ask, you know, what is the purpose of a college education? Um, I think it's really changed in the last several decades. Um, you know, there is a lot of, um, you know, um, struggle that students have with learning interpersonal communication because they have grown up in a generation where there's so much texting and they have a virtual self and that virtual self uh, arrives um, on campus and four years later graduates and may not have developed the kind of communication skills and other relationship skills to enter a healthy relationship that may long-term lead to marriage. Um, and I think what I see in their 30s and 40s when they come to me, um, and primarily it's women, by the way, although not exclusively, certainly, but um, they have, um, they, they walk into me and say, you know, I, I think I need a matchmaker because I don't know how to find a relationship and I want to get married, I want to have children, and I don't know how to do that. So the question then goes back to the university, you know, <coughs> this is a different generation that's coming through their doors and they need to, I think, look at teaching a different skill set to help students succeed both 
um, in their professional lives as well as their personal lives, ultimately getting to um, you know, the definition of success, which I believe is happiness. And the skills that you know, there's opportunity to teach are the intangibles and the softer skills, things like um, how to be vulnerable, how to communicate, how to negotiate a compromise in a relationship, how to make uh, trade-offs. You know, there are all these things that kids are not used to doing anymore, and there's so much room on college campuses, um, both inside the classroom and out, to bring the students to a place where they're successful after they leave. Eric, I'm curious, A, is that what you're experiencing and seeing on a college campus, and is it the role of a liberal arts college or university to be teaching these kinds of life skills? I mean, these are places that are supposed to be preparing kids for the future, getting jobs. We don't necessarily think of them as being places where we're teaching them how to have relationships. Right. Well, first of all, I would say uh, in response to that question, I think there's kind of a false dichotomy where we assume that there's a trade-off between kind of you know, hard academic skills on the one hand and so-called soft relational type skills on the other. And we see this debate played out actually in the um, public education world as well with younger kids. So I, th I think I would say that there is, that, that, that's sort of a, a straw man argument. I think it's a bit of a false dichotomy. Um, but getting back to your question of what I'm seeing, I, I do see similar things. I mean, one of the things that we saw at Harvard a lot was students saying that they just didn't have time to have relationships, that it was not on their radar screen at all. And that was such a different experience than, than my college experience, which also coincidentally was at Harvard um, 30 years previously. And you know, it was just considered kind of a normal rite of passage that you would have some kind of a relationship. It didn't mean that you were seeking a spouse or that it was going to be a long, long-term situation. But it was considered part of being kind of an adult, a newly adult person that you would um, you know, try to make an effort to get to know people in a more intimate way. And I think, although it is, it sounds like a cliche, but it really was something that I observed on a routine basis that, that college students um, really just don't have a lot of, they, they believe they don't have a lot of time for relationships, and they seem to view that as, um, you know, a draw on their, on their main goal for being at college, which increasingly is not only to have an academic experience, but it seems to be a, a, an opportunity to kind of develop professional skills. So I would say that I totally agree with you. And I think, I think it's a false dichotomy. And I think there are ways to embed these kinds of skills in both the academic experience and in um, the residential life experience, if you will. And if I could just really briefly maybe give yeah, an sure. example of both. I think academically, you know, I'm not suggesting, and I want to be clear, I'm not suggesting that you know, there be some kind of required curriculum where people learn how to become parents. And, you know, I think that's not realistic in a lot of universities, although I think it would be great to have some coursework that, um, that has those kinds of skills embedded in it. But I, I, I'm not suggesting that we, you know, shift the academic focus of a university like Yale, for example. I don't think that's going to be a, a, an easy sell. But I don't think we have to. I think one of the things that's missing in the academic experience for young people is this tolerance that Lori was talking about. Um, for being uncomfortable, you know, for dealing with failure, um, for being offended. That, that's a huge problem on campuses right now, and you may have read about this in the news. Um, I don't know if you've heard of trigger warnings. Has anybody heard about this concept of trigger warnings? Where, you Why know, don't you explain what it is, because it's yeah. a really interesting it's, concept. It, and I think it's related to what we're talking about, so just bear with me for a second. So trigger warnings are this um, phrase that's used. It's, it's a warning that professors are asked to insert in 
for example, a lecture or a homework assignment, um, if it's about a topic that might cause discomfort or trauma or anxiety. And it's become really almost, uh, it's, take, it's been taken to absurd extremes where professors are asked to literally censor and modulate you know, things that in previous generations would have just been considered um, you know, the things you hear about when you go to college, you know, you learn about Marxism or you learn about feminism or you learn about fundamentalist religions. And, and now, you know, people have to insert a trigger warning. And people, it's actually become part of the, uh, the sort of conversational discourse where people will kind of ironically say, you know, trigger warning, I'm about to eat another piece of cake. And, you know, if you, <laughs> if you, you know, had issues with that. And, <laughs> but, but, you know, the joking aside, I think it's a real problem, this, this intolerance of, um, of discomfort and, and intolerance of ideas. And it's really ironic because, of course, we live in, in a much more diverse uh, world than we ever did before. And college campuses are so much more diverse than they ever were. But when I was at Harvard, you know, we would routinely have students come to me and asked me to modulate the email listserv because someone was offended that the posters for a dance were too sexually provocative, or conversely, that people were being overly sensitive about you know, this or that topic. And you know, our response was, if you can't tolerate uncomfortable speech in a university, then where can you? Where is a place for free speech if it's not on a campus? And we had to really work with students over and over again. We brought in, actually, the director of a wonderful organization called the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, um, who, brought, who talked to our students about free speech violations on campus, which are rampant. Um, and it was interesting, because some of the students were really into it, and a lot of them were really, really resistant. And their feeling was, if I'm uncomfortable, if I'm sad, if you're offending me, then you need to solve that problem for me. And I, I found that very disturbing. So I think that's connected to the relationship issue in that academically, I think professors need to really put their foot down about this and say, look, you may not like what we're saying. It's OK. Let me help you through those feelings. Let's talk about them. And let's not just put the blinders on. But I think, Erica, to your point, Lori, this goes back to what you were saying before, right? right? Parents are doing too much problem solving. Now the college campuses are doing too much problem solving. Right. I think, I think the issue that, that Erica speaks so beautifully to is that a lot of these kids have trouble tolerating other people's reality. So they, they feel that their reality is the reality. And if somebody else has a different reality, they, they can't handle that. And so in therapy sessions, they expect me to agree with everything they're saying. And if not, I'm not being empathic. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, and I'll say to them, I'm not going to just punch your card. I mean, if you want to spend your money, your parents' money, because that's what they're doing, I mean, if you want to spend your parents' money um, for me punching your card, you can go get that with your friends. They will, they will yes you on everything. You can get that with your parents because they will back you up on everything. But I'm going to offer a different perspective, not that mine is right, but I'm going to give you other perspectives. And you can sit with those perspectives and see what happens with that. And you see them grow. They actually can do this. But it takes somebody really sitting down with them and saying, the world is full of lots of realities. And, you know, and another thing, going back to, to Rachel and the communication, um, I remember the first time that somebody came in, a 22-year-old who had just graduated, and she's telling me about a breakup with a boyfriend. And she says, and then I said, and I'm like, what is she doing with her hands? And I'm like, what is that? <laughs> And she's like, oh, and then I said, and she was telling me what she was texting back and forth during this breakup. 
And I'm like, you broke up on text? And she's like, well, yeah, we always talk on text. And, and so there's just a lot of, you know, like she really, that's how they talk. And she would do this all the time with her thumbs. And then, and then other people started doing this. Whenever they're like, I said, but they didn't say, they typed. Or they thumbed or whatever they did. But um, <laughs> I'm so old that, like, to me, it's so foreign. But, um, but seriously, there are people who literally will know. They'll send each other. They think they have this intimate relationship where they're sending each other links of their favorite bands and all these different philosophical thoughts and what they read in the New York Times that day. But And these sort of sexual flirtation things. They literally don't know whether the person that they're dating has siblings. They don't know. They've never been to their house. You know, because it's all happening virtually or during, or they're having these sexual encounters, these, these kind of hookups, but they don't really, they don't know how to go on a date. So one college has, there was an article in the Boston Globe recently where one college has assigned for coursework people to go on a first date. That was the assignment. And people didn't know how to do this, but they went out on first dates and it was a really interesting article. And this is, this is what it's come to, that people don't actually interact face to face and when they do like Erica said they really feel like it's about them and their internal reality and it's really hard if you're going to be in a relationship to know well how do I listen to somebody else how do I hear another viewpoint how do I compromise in a relationship even if it's not exactly my view Rachel let's let's expand that a little bit because this gets I think it would be really enlightening for people because it was for me when we had a phone call um, to go over what we were going to be talking about today, and I didn't know a lot about this. Talk to us about what is happening in relationship world on campuses, this hookup nature right. of, um, so of relationships. Lori alluded to the hookup culture, which I think most people in this room are probably uh, very aware of, that the pervasive... Um, is everybody male, aware of what the hookup culture is? The pervasive relationships happening on campus are brief sexual encounters. And that's the hookup culture, um, fueled by alcohol. Fueled by alcohol, and you know, fraternity hazing and all sorts of things that we all know about from media reports. But what's happening emotionally in the hookup culture to students on campus is that in gearing themselves up for sex, they're draining themselves emotionally, and that becomes a very dangerous cycle where they are sort of in training during the four years they're on campus to separate their emotions, to be able to, I mean, not even separate, to discard, to ignore, to swallow their emotions so that they can participate in the very, you know, anxiety-provoking but common uh, dynamic, which is the hookup culture. And so there are a few universities around the campus who are doing some very interesting things. And I think part of being at Ideas Fest is hearing about what one or two places are doing so that maybe we can replicate those in greater number. So Duke University, for example, has a course called How to Be in Love. And it's a uh, six-part workshop that is under the umbrella of the uh, Campus Counseling Center. And the topics in the various workshops week to week are things like how to recognize a toxic romance, how to handle a breakup. Is this um, something that students get credit for? Uh, no, it, this is not a credit okay. class. I was just, just, it's just a curious. voluntary <laughs> workshop. That you could major in workshop relationships. Workshop series. Yeah. But you know, long term, I think there is room for um, 
credit uh, grade-based seminars like this because our kids are in a resume-driven culture, and so that's probably going to motivate them to take the course. There are others. Um, the University of Kentucky has a class that's called something like Dating 101, where they actually teach the basics. Again, it's under the counseling center. It's not academic credit. But they teach basics like how to ask someone on a date, like the actual words, <laughs> and how to, what to do on a date. I mean, romance has sort of gone the way of cursive handwriting in today's society. Um, the University of Illinois uh, Champaign-Urbana has a class that is also about um, dating, and they get into more of the um, intimacy issues and uh, things like um, how to communicate and how to be vulnerable. Um, and sort of my vision for what I would hope in 2024 could be that it moves to academic credit and there could be courses like the biology of intimacy or the psychology of vulnerability. Um, courses like that that, while they don't speak to how to date, they get at um, behaviors and patterns of what it's going to take long run to be successful and happy in relationships. And you know, this impacts the university's bottom line. This isn't just, you know, nice to have because, you know, theoretically happy alumni who are successful in all the ways that success is defined. Right, we'll give back to the, to the school. Yeah. I'm curious just to, I want to see a show of hands. Does, do you all think that this is a place that colleges and universities should be playing a role? Should they be having classes? Let's see, yes? Yes. Okay, is this, Erica, do you think that this is a role that colleges and universities should be taking on, or should they be in the business of educating students academically in the more traditional way and letting students figure out this other part? No, I think absolutely the university should be in this business. I think the good news is that the science is really behind this. I mean, if you look on bookshelves, you see books on the scientific basis of happiness and the philosophy of why people are happy, and there's just so much good neuroscience research now. And, and you know, psychologists are all over this. Interestingly, they're really uh, concerned about their own kind of adult lives, and when it comes to younger people, we, we aren't quite so so concerned, I think. But so I, I think the science is really um, driving this move that you're talking about. Yeah. So I think there will be more and more courses um, like you described. And I think in the, um, I also think, as I, as I started to say, I, I think that professors um, can really play a role in engaging students in vigorous, healthy debate that isn't frightening or depressing to people, that just gets people to listen to each other. And I think you know, people do a lot of hand-wringing right now about the future of the university and particularly the future of liberal arts colleges. And, you know, when you can just dial up a TED Talk or a Khan Academy talk online, what's the point? Why are we paying, you know, tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars to send our children to college? But the thing is you can't outsource human relationships. And universities are, they provide this beautiful captive audience of human beings who are all united in a collective purpose. And, you know, until we figure out how to outsource that, I think universities are going to be front and center of educating people to be successful in the world, you know, to be good to one another, to ask questions, to seek answers. And all of this, it, to me, is entirely compatible with the academic mission of the university. So I think when people sort of portray it as a zero-sum thing, I think that's very false, intellectually very false. You know, Lori, this is, it's interesting because what we're talking about, the truth is it's easier than ever to go to college 
online mm -hmm. to find, to get a degree in other ways. It is exceedingly expensive. College students come out strapped financially with all sorts of debt. Do you think this is an opportunity for colleges to expand their role? And is this something that, that you think is, is worthwhile and that they should be doing? Well, I think one of the benefits of being on a college campus is that you get to meet so many different kinds of people. But one of the messages that these campuses give to the kids is, first of all, I think the women come on campus with this idea, of a very specific idea of how they define feminism, which is you have to be really independent. It's great to be independent. We don't need men. We don't need other people. We're going to just, you know, be really aggressive in how we kind of pursue our professional lives. And at the same time, and, and so that goes into the hookup culture too, is on these campuses, they kind of feel like we don't need relationships. And I think that, that men at the same time, the men that I see in my practice, contrary to what the culture might say, yes, there are a lot of men who enjoy the hookup culture to some degree, or, or more degrees than that, but, but there are also a lot of men who say, like, what is going, like women are just so busy, they don't want to be with me, they don't want to, you know, they don't even want a relationship. And so I think there's this idea of independence is such a high value in our culture and the universities actually encourage that, that you should be really independent. And I think that one of the things about going into the world is that we find that you don't want to be alone in the world, that you want to have a community around you. Many people want a partner. Some people want a, 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 an intimate community, whatever they want. And I think this idea of being independent is something that's so part of today's university. So I think, I don't know about taking classes online, but I think, I think being in a, in a culture where community is a big part of it, and not just what are you going to do for me. And I think that plays into the sense of entitlement that kids have growing up, where it's all about them and what's going to be on their resume and how they're going to get to the next step. They go in, they're at the certain preschool they get into, and if they get into that preschool, that's a feeder for this elementary school. And if they get into that, they do these things at the elementary school, and they get into this middle school, and this high school, and this college, and now it's unstructured. Now you're in the world, there is no structure now. So what do you do? And I think they find themselves to be really lonely. The people that I see, if you met them out in the world, you'd say, I want my kids to be like that. Look, they're so personable and successful, and they seem so lovely, and they're really lonely. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open yeah. it up to the audience in just a, a minute, so if our microphoners would, would get ready. But um, Lori, I want to follow up. There was recently some controversy about an article, I believe, about Princeton University, a mom wrote about, can you sum up what that was, the article? Right. Um, so she wrote an article, I think she's known now as the Princeton mom, and she wrote an article saying that women, she feels that women on campuses should not dismiss the idea that they might meet their husbands on a campus. I, I don't, I didn't really sort of follow everything that happened after that, but, but I, I think the main point that she's made, that that I took away from it um, isn't that you're going to college to get married. I think that it's important to be in a, in a mind space that I'm around all of these peers who are interesting people and intellectual people like me and when will I ever in the real world, and we all know what the real world is like, when you go out into the real world, it's not that campus. It's not people who are your age, who are all single, 
who are all interesting in various ways, and you have this pool of people, why wouldn't you want to see whether or not one of those people might be somebody you'd like to be in a relationship with? Maybe it would lead to marriage, maybe it wouldn't, but why not even explore relationships? Why rule that out because you're 20 years old? Rachel, do you want to add to that? Yeah, so my son actually is a uh, just finishing freshman year at Princeton right now, and so the whole controversy over the Princeton mom. You're not um, the Princeton mom, are no, you? No, I'm not. <laughs> just her, checking. No, her, her name is Susan Patton. Um, and so the, the actual um, campus really uh, rejected what she had to say, and I think she was really misunderstood. And she was not saying that she thinks college students should get married you know, in their early 20s, but she was saying keep your eyes open while you're on campus with all these you know, smart, educated, interesting people because never again will you have that opportunity after you leave the grounds of your campus. But I think what that begs is the notion that because they rejected her message on campus, I think you have to talk to college students in a language that is meaningful to them at that age. And so where I see the skills being taught to have successful, healthy relationships later in life is sort of um, teaching it to them in a realm that doesn't even use the word dating. You're sort of teaching them skills that are building a foundation that they can tap into later in a different realm. So let me give you an example. Um, you know, I see them when they're in their 30s and 40s and they don't know how to date online. And that's the primary way at that age where you're meeting somebody. So they come to me in, as a dating coach and they say, well, how, how do I evaluate a profile? And I, you know, this guy doesn't look very good for this reason or that reason. And so what if on college campuses, say the uh, career counseling center had a workshop on how to evaluate LinkedIn profiles, not online dating profiles, but LinkedIn profiles as a way to help students evaluate whether the job they're applying for and the people in the leadership of those companies is a good match for the values and interests of the student. So there you're teaching sort of fundamentals, which is really the larger mission of a university, but you're teaching them in a language that is immediately meaningful to them, which is getting a job. And later, if they haven't met the person they want to spend their life with, they can draw on those skills of evaluating online profiles and knowing you know, different nuances that um, really help them connect with the right person or in the world of a 20-year-old, a corporate culture. Okay, I want to open it up to the audience. Now, this is being recorded, so we need to make sure that when you ask a question that you have a microphone. We have two people with microphones, is that correct? One and two. Okay, let's start right here. The lady in the blue, the microphone is coming right behind you. I, I would just like to know, after listening to all this, what do you think happened to these kids between the ages of 1 and 18? Don't you think they were observing things in their home? And really what I want to know is what you think the role of parents is today. Okay, so that's not a, to foster some of these things that you think they have to learn in college. when they go to college. That's a, that's a great question, Lori, right? I mean, right. why are we in a position where we're even putting the colleges into the question and into the equation of helping kids have relationships? Right, so let me paint a picture of sort of between one and 18. So the child is born, 
um, everything has to be exactly right for the child. Their, you know, their wipes have to be warmed with the warmer. The, you know, like it's just all these. There's a whole industry, but there's this there's this industry that plays into our fears that if we aren't doing these things, we might be doing our child a disservice. And what happens is the child then grows up and thinks that there's sort of this shopping mentality in life. They have all the choices in the world because, you know, we don't want to limit their choices because then we're being bad parents. So, you know, when you go to the supermarket with the child, it's like, do you want the peach yogurt or the vanilla yogurt? Do you want to go here or here today? Do you want to wear this or that? And we never just say, like, here's what you need to do or make a decision. <laughs> and so there's always these long discussions with the children. And while we think we're being really... Um, you know, sort of progressive parents, I think there's a balance between being sort of the, the parent who just makes all the decisions and the parent who has to discuss everything endlessly. So they grow up and they think that everything is available to them and, and everything, there's sort of an immediate gratification thing that goes on. So they don't want to wait for anything, they don't want to, you know, anything needs to come quickly to them or it's going to be too uncomfortable. And then when you see them get a little, you know, and, and there's no, it's, it's this sort of paradox of they go and they compete in things, but everybody gets a trophy for everything, even though they're in this highly competitive school that it took, you know, whatever strings needed to be pulled to get them into. So, but everything's non-competitive and everybody's equal, but they know everybody's not equal, and they know who the most valuable player on the team is, even though everybody got a trophy. So they think that everything's kind of available to them. They don't really have a realistic sense of what their talents are, because everybody's telling them they're so wonderful at everything. And then they go out into the world and talking about sort of, you know, dating, they go out into the world and they have things like um, Tinder where you just look on your app and you can see everybody who's single in your immediate area and you look based on a photo and a one-liner and you can just meet up with them right away. And everything has to be so immediate. So there's not a lot of patience that they learned growing up. They can't really wait for things. And then as they get older, they really can't wait for things and they expect everything to just come to them whenever they want it to happen. And I think that that's where parenting can really make a difference, is showing kids, well, actually, you're gonna be a little frustrated with this, you can't have this right away, or you don't have 500 million choices about this particular thing. Great. Can I ask you? you sure, go ahead. Just quickly, uh, you know, as a parent, I, rea I agree 100% with you, and yet I also cringe, because of course I'm guilty of every single thing <laughs> you said. And, I guess I just want to say that I think there are some real societal changes that have made us the way we are. I mean, families are smaller. You know, we live in an information age where we're bombarded with information about all the things we're doing wrong and all of the risks, whether they're perceived or real. And so it's, I think it's really hard to be a parent. And I guess I just want to give a little bit of hope to everybody that even though we may all be doing these horrible things to our children, um, you know, there is one really effective thing that you can do to try to kind of turn this cycle around a little bit, and you kind of allude to this, which is, you know, we can be that reality check to our children. We can ask them questions and, you know, get them to kind of step out of themselves and assume the perspective of someone else and just push back a little bit. And I would just encourage all of us to try to do that as much as we can. And we're going to, I want to, before, when we get to the last 10 minutes, I really want to talk about things, concrete things that we can do to kind of help our children right, right. Um, navigate. What a great panel. Uh, when it comes to parenting of actual college kids, I don't have any kids in college yet, so I'm curious. I hear from my friends that they basically call for money. And that beyond that, you really don't hear from them very much. 
So my question to you is, how much is the right, the right, I mean, obviously it depends on the kid, but a good guideline of how much to talk to them? Do you, should you have a scheduled time a on question. Sunday afternoons? What should be the, the sort of, you know, should we be peppering them with questions? What kinds of things can we ask of them beyond, I mean, getting into relationships? I'm, I don't think so. I'm not sure that they're always prepared to discuss relationships that they're having on campus with us. So how would you recommend? That's a, that's a really great question, Some, a really concrete question. So having a, a freshman this year was a very um, big learning curve for me. And I think there are some tactical things and some emotional things that answer your question. Um, tactically, I was uh, quite shocked to learn of their sleep patterns. Mm -hmm. And the time that my son wanted to talk to me was usually after 2 a.m. Eastern time. No. Luckily, I'm on mountain time, so it was only midnight my time. But if I wasn't uh, if I wasn't answering my phone at midnight, and, and I don't think he expected me to, but that's when he thought to pick up the phone and when he needed to talk to me, then I How would, often was that call? It was probably once or twice a week um, that he would call at 2 a.m. Eastern time. So midnight, I would answer the phone. Luckily, I'm a night owl, so it wasn't too bad. But I think just tactically sort of trying to be there when they need to talk to you is sort of the biggest way you can support them emotionally rather than um, having them talk to you on your timetable. Like what might be convenient for me is at eight o'clock on a Sunday night. Well, he has no interest in, in really opening up and uh, telling me what's really going on at eight o'clock on Sunday night. But you know, if you can kind of adjust your hours and maybe you'll be, um, more of a night owl during the college years. Um, I think that's, that helps. Emotionally, though, I think um, it's really important to ask them questions back when they ask you a question. So if they're having trouble with a roommate and they say, what should I do? You should say to them, like sort of in therapy, you know, what a therapist would say, well, what do you think you should do? And hopefully- I hate when the therapist does I, that. It's annoying. <laughs> yeah. It's, like, it's, it's annoying, but you're sort of training them to make the transition. I want concrete answers. I know, I know. Um, Erica, I want to ask the same question to you. What is, and I'm, I am also the parent of a, of a rising sophomore in college, and it's very hard to figure out what is the right, I know I just embarrassed him, but what is, what is the right amount? I mean, I, personally, I don't think there is a right answer. I think it depends so much on the family culture and your child's needs. I also think kids' needs change. You know, at the beginning of freshman year, children may need either a lot of space or conversely, they need a lot of support. Um, one of our children goes to Yale and we live in New Haven and so you know for the first few weeks he made it very clear he did not want us to have any contact because he really wanted to separate and you know I said I just want the same crummy level of contact that every other parent <laughs> is entitled to it. and um, you know so I think so I do I don't know if there is a right answer to that but I do think this idea of kind of giving um, ceding some control to the, to the child and getting them to articulate their needs and maybe testing a little bit with them. Um, you know, I found when I was at Harvard, you know, we would have these kind of sometimes borderline delusional conversations with students where they would, um, you know, t I'll give you an example. Um, they had to fill out a party form if they were going to have a big party in the dorm. And it was just basically to get them to think about appropriate alcohol use and, you know, what kind of food they would have available and all these things. And so I would ask, you know, what... Um, so how many people are you going to have at your party? And they'd say, you know, 50. And I'd say, okay, you know, what kind of food are you going to have? Because, of course, if you're eating when you're drinking, it's protective. Um, and they'd say, oh, uh, um, Cheerios. 
<laughs> and I would say, are, are you kidding me? Cheerios. <laughs> really? Do people, you know, do people your age eat Cheerios? And they'd say, well, uh, you know, because they could go and grab free Cheerios in the dining hall. So that was their plan. And, you know, we would just kind of do a little more. And they'd say, well, okay, pretzels. And then I would say, you know, do people like pretzels? Does anybody eat pretzels? Does that have any protein in it? Would that help you if you're getting drunk? And we would just keep along. It sounds so infantile, but getting them to reflect. And in the end, I never had to say anything. I never had to say, you know, I don't think you should go out and buy 20 handles of vodka. That doesn't sound like a good idea. I never had to say those things because just asking these open-ended questions, smart students will, children will come to the right answer. So I think that's the thing, getting back to this question of how often do you talk to your kids. It's really the quality of your conversation. And one more thing, I think texting can actually be a really effective way to communicate. I know we've just finished telling you how terrible these um, impersonal uh, communication forms are, but sometimes that's all your child can tolerate. And sometimes, you know, you, ha you can kind of seize an opportunity. Um, I mean, I've had kids text me, you know, I'm just, sometimes I just can't stop thinking about the meaning of life. And at first I would get a text like this and I would start responding, you know, in this totally overwrought way, and then there would be silence. And now I'll just text back, yeah, I know. And, <laughs> and then they text back, and then we have this sort of, you know, maybe it's superficial, but maybe it's not. I want to make sure that we try to get to, we don't have that much time left. So um, who's got the microphone now? Right here. Okay, perfect. Well, I have a question. Don't you think we're lowering the bar if we keep adjusting our schedules to their needs? Because like you said, you know, if he's going to call you at 2 o'clock in the morning, can't you ask him to call you once a month at 8, 8, on a, I mean 8 p.m. on a Sunday night? Do you know, yeah. just, this so, can I just, just this morning, I was asked by um, someone at Yale what time I wanted to schedule my class next semester. And one of my options is 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. And I said yes, yeah. <laughs> because I felt like this is when students are awake, and they'll be more alert, they will have had dinner. And I had the same thought, am I just pandering? Like, this is not how the real world works. Lori, what about Sorry, in terms of, uh, in terms of um, you know, kids calling home and our catering, like whenever you want to call, we'll take the call, which, right, is, right. which, which is where I am. Right. So, <laughs> me too. Right. Me so, too. I, I think that I think the kid. I think it's really healthy for kids to understand that their parents are people with lives, and that they aren't just available twenty four seven. Unless there's an emergency, of course they are. Um, so, I think that they need to be able to differentiate. Like, is it a red alert or is it just, hey, I'm, look at this picture of this food that I'm eating right now. <laughs> and so, you know, there, there's, there's different degrees of, of being respectful. And I think this has to do with respect and understanding that parents are human beings and they have lives and they're not just these people who serve you all the time. They are not like your Sherpa and your butler and, you know, they're like these people who have other things going on and you are the most important people in their lives. But... They also have lives. And so when Rachel said that, now I just want to make this disclaimer. I have an eight-year-old, so talk to me in 10 years when my yeah. child's calling me at midnight. But um, Hello. <laughs> but, um, you know, I mean, I think even with my eight-year-old, I, I set boundaries. And we'll see whether he's going to end up in therapy in 10 years and say, Mommy, it was terrible. Um, but uh, we got the, the 529 and the therapy fund. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, there are times, you know, like if I'm on the phone, 
I'm sorry, he can't talk to me because I am on the phone. But there are parents that I see with kids who are, you know, eight years old, and like their kids will talk to them, and I'm having a phone conversation with this person, and they will talk to their child while they are on the phone with me. And I find that incredibly annoying because it's like, we're on the phone. Your child has to be able to wait 10 minutes for you to get off the phone unless somebody is bleeding. And, um, you know, or the house is on fire or something like that. And so, you know, if my, I mean, I, again, I don't know. So it works yeah. for them. And I think, I think there's, I think one thing to take away from this is there's no sort of, as Erica said, one set thing. But I also feel like part of the respect in the workplace that kids, I have a friend who's a producer on a morning show, and he said that when they hired this girl from Harvard and she was really talented, and he said to her on set one time, we need this thing, and she said, just a minute, I'm finishing this text, and it was to her friend. That's not good. And, and they did not fire her because they just thought, oh, kids these days. And that kept happening, and it took months before they fired her, and he said, we should have just fired her in the beginning. And I think that that's the kind of thing where they think adults can just work around their schedules and they don't really understand their roles. So I think it's really important to have open communication and, and for your kids to know that they can call you at any time if there's a problem, but that the time to just like talk to you is going to be maybe not the middle of the night. Yes, right over there. I really appreciate this talk on mental health for, for the young kids. But my one question is, um, if you see uh, in, in college the college child getting uh, a really mental problem, becoming mentally ill. What is happening in the counseling departments and the colleges now? That's a huge issue, of course, in America with all the mental illness that's going on. And I'd like to know what's happening yeah, in the colleges. That's a great Thank question. You. Erica, do you want to answer that? Well, it is a huge problem. And I can tell you, uh, based on my experience, that uh, the demand for services really exceeds the availability of services. And this is a real issue. And it, it, it's sort of a puzzling phenomenon that in many ways, young people are doing better than ever. Um, you know, there's, they're dropping out of school less, they're getting pregnant less, all these things, are, you know, they're using fewer drugs. And yet, um, depression is really huge and it's growing and suicide is growing and that's obviously the most devastating thing that can happen on a campus. Um, I would say, perhaps a little bit defensively, that I think colleges are, are doing a much better job than they are accused of doing. I think you know, there are lots and lots of resources going to young people. Um, a lot of times people come to college with undetected problems. Very typical thing that happens is that someone will be kind of coasting along with an undiagnosed, um, let's say, ADHD uh, situation. And they've been able to get through high school because they were really smart and they had a lot of family support. Then they get to college and suddenly symptoms emerge that maybe were never even diagnosed or they were diagnosed and weren't acknowledged. Um, and, you know, people have psychotic breaks in their early 20s. So the mental health needs are huge. I, again, I want to get back to kind of the prescription here. I think the more that young people can be encouraged to talk to one another, to seek help, not to be ashamed, um, at Harvard, they had a big campaign called Harvard Speaks Up where they got faculty members like myself to talk about our own history of depression as young people or at other points in our lives to try to normalize these issues and get people to talk about them. And again, another pitch for the um, experience of relationships, you know, being in a relationship is protective. I mean, emotionally protective. And I think it's terribly sad that so many college students don't allow themselves to fall in love, you know, because that actually does get you through, you know, you fail a test or you don't, you get cut from your team or you don't get the job you wanted. Um, and, and part and of that is parent messaging to their, you know, 18 year old, oh, 
don't get serious, you're too young, Absolutely. you know, focus on your studies. I call your mother instead. Yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> there's a huge message. And, and also the message that you have to go to college to, to um, you know, to build your resume. And, and so there's sort of this weird professionalism of the college experience, which can really be at odds with healthy living. All right, we have time just for a few, let's see, right here. We just have you, a few minutes left. What do you think is behind uh, the view of the students that they don't have time for a relationship? Is it that part of what you just talked about, they feel like in the time they have, their focus should just be on the academics? Or is college much more rigorous than 20, 25 years ago when we went? <laughs> I mean, I think all evidence suggests it's less challenging. If you look at data on assignments, um, grade inflation, it's not, it's not more demanding, for sure, I can tell you that. Uh, it's different, of course. Um, I, I think it's just a, a cultural expectation. You know, people are getting internships, they're doing tons and tons and tons of extracurricular activities, and many of them are wonderful. A lot of them are not so wonderful, and students feel huge pressure you know, to get, I think admissions committees have a lot to answer for, because they are driving this frenetic uh, resume building that starts in ninth grade, you know, it starts in middle school. And that mentality then spills over into college and people get to college and I cannot tell you how many times students would tell me, I don't have time to have dinner, I don't have time for a conversation, I've got to go to this meeting, this meeting, I'm secretary of this, I'm director of this. And they admit that a lot of it's bogus. They really do. But part of it is that they don't have time management skills, which right. is an opportunity right. for colleges to offer something like that, maybe freshman orientation right. week, right. because they'll say they don't have time for a relationship or other things like dinner. But you know, then you ask them, how many hours a day do you spend on Facebook? How, how <laughs> much time do you spend on you know, all the various forms of social media and other things that are just inefficient and that have replaced uh, the time that we used to have as adults because we didn't have all that virtual um, demand on our time when we were in, in school. We just have two minutes left and I really want to get just some final thoughts. Lori, do you want to begin? Um, I just wanted to say something about that mm -hmm. last question, that this idea of kids don't know how to make choices, they don't know how, because if you make one choice you might cut off another opportunity. So they don't know how to commit to anything. So they end up going to 500 meetings a day and you know doing all these different things. And I think that what the university can do is help with a value system, not telling them what values to have, but their values are all about resume building and I have to go to all these different meetings and I have to be in all these different extracurriculars. Whereas what do you really value and why don't you focus a little more intensely on this one thing as opposed to these four other things and then you will have time for some of the things that can balance out your life. Erica, final thought? I think the future of the university is in people. And I think you know we can blame kids these days for all kinds of silly stuff, but it's really the adults, it's the admissions advisor, counselors, it's the parents, it's the professors, it's the college administrators who need to come to their senses and value face-to-face -face communication. <laughs> I don't want to see your sons and daughters in my office at age 35 and 40 looking for love and not knowing how to find it. And so if you wind back the clock you know, 15 or 20 years to when they're on the college campus, I just want to challenge everyone in this room to ask um, your uh, you know, 
campus administrators and deans and your, your child's RA, residential advisor on their um, floor to you know, help in whatever way they can. I mean, certainly massive change at the university level. You know, we could all be waiting 100 years for that. So if it takes too long to start offering these um, courses, either for academic credit or not, that some of the schools like Duke is offering today, then what can you do sort of at the grassroots level as parents and even encouraging your resume-driven children to start clubs or to go to their counseling office and ask for help in these communication skills that are going to lead to more quality relationships. Um, and down the road, they will not be in my office, and I will be ecstatic to be out of a job. <laughs> I want to thank everybody for being here today. I understand, um, I understand we had a little competition at this noon hour. So we're especially happy that you were with us. I want to thank our wonderful panelists, Rachel Greenwald, Erica Christakis, and Lori Gottlieb. Thank you so much. Thank you.